I'm Afshin Ratansi and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from Dubai in the heart of the energy-rich Middle East. This week we ask, do oil sanctions work or merely kill people in the countries doing the sanctioning? The Biden administration continues to deny Seymour Hersh's report that it blew up Europe's pipelines, destabilizing global energy markets and creating the largest man-made single fossil fuel emission event. Oil sanctions, meanwhile, on Russia are routinely assumed by NATO nation media to be an appropriate response to what has been happening in Ukraine. One analyst who believes the war in Europe signals a new order in global energy markets and politics is the current managing partner of the advisory firm Energy Outlook Advisors. Award-winning scholar Anas Alhaji, former chief economist at NGP Energy Capital Management, joins me now from Texas. Thank you so much, Anas, for uh, coming on. Before we get to that new order uh, in global energy markets, I better just... Uh, begin with asking you why you tweeted the EU is doomed if pipelines uh, effectively like Nord Stream start getting attacked uh, all the time. They become the norm uh, after what happened and what Cy Hirsch claims was a effectively a Biden, Blinken, Sullivan, Newland attack. Sure. If you look around the world, uh, what you see is, and whether you see this in uh, old days in Colombia, or you see it in Nigeria, you see it in Yemen, Everyone who gets mad, basically, they attack the pipelines. And once it starts, basically, every group that uh, wants something, they start, they look at Iraq, for example, too. Uh, they'll start attacking uh, oil facilities. And the, by uh, whoever attacked that pipeline, basically, uh, they just opened a can of worm in this case, where they are telling everyone, look, you can do that. You can literally do a copycat for whatever reason you want. And that was the fear at that time that most of Europe basically is under the reach of Russia. If Russia wants to retaliate, at the same time, there are other countries involved and they have interest too. Uh, we already have seen several countries expressing their interest in either piping the gas to Europe or sending it through LNG uh, or various methods. From, from the US, that would be. But th that doesn't explain why there seems to be a kind of radio silence in NATO nation media, even about the investigations. Uh, the German, uh, the Swedish and the Danish uh, investigation teams haven't gone public. They've said they've investigated and they, they haven't said who did it. I mean, is, are the energy traders not interested in it? Because clearly it had an impact on the energy markets, let alone the environment. Absolutely. So from my point of view, I don't have any private information at all. I know Seymour Hirsch basically done a lot of work on this. I'm going to speak uh, from a pure theoretical point of view when we talk about energy security. And it is very clear that Russia does not have an interest in this. And the U.S., especially the Biden administration, has no interest either. So I was really surprised when I read the uh, report by uh, Simon Hirsch. Uh, simply because it was very clear that the Biden administration was trying to make every single effort to supply Europe with enough energy for the winter. And they got lucky. And they got lucky on two fronts. They got lucky because of the mild winter, and they got lucky because of the uh, uh, no uh, or lack of hurricanes or damaging hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico, where all the LNG basically is made and all the ships basically leave the Gulf of Mexico to Europe. So they got lucky. But without that, Europe would have been in big trouble. So the issue is, 
we've seen the efforts by the administration to supply Europe with energy to the extent that they ignored all the human rights issues in Iran, all the human rights issues in Venezuela, all the sanctions on those two countries, and they literally give exemptions to certain companies to ship the oil from those countries to Europe. So the idea here is very clear that the Biden administration wants to secure energy supplies in Europe, and it's not in its interest to bomb the gas pipelines before the winter. Apologies for the sound, but uh, we will continue. People can watch our uh, interview about The Economist magazine and its brutal history on our Rumble channel, but even The Economist said that the excess debts this winter were 185,000. Are you saying that uh, just a, uh, not a major, major hurricane, but a reasonable hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico could have meant hundreds, thousands more dying after the energy price instability caused by the Nord Stream pipeline explosion? I don't know about the numbers and the deaths, but the, uh, the whole idea here that we have, and this is one of the main results of the one year of conflict, is that we, we've seen a switch, a complete switch, independence for, uh, from Russian gas to American gas. Russian gas was piped, was way cheaper, was long-term contracts, while the U.S. LNG is way more expensive and way more uh, dangerous in a sense when it comes to energy security, simply because, uh, as we've seen with the fire at the uh, Freeport, uh, we end up with some problems, technical problems. And if we end up with hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico, where Europe is going to get the gas from? Well, clearly and some of it's been replaced. I mean, there, there no. are sanctions. No, this is, this is the problem. The, the issue here is this. All we did, and this is, again, one of the main results of the conflict, is we have changes in the direction of trade in energy sources, mainly oil and gas and coal. And it's a musical chairs, period. That's what the sanctions did. It's a musical chair. We, we diverted the Russian gas to Asia. We sent the American gas to Europe. We diverted the uh, oil from Europe to Asia and the Middle East and Africa, and then the Middle East and Africa start sending oil to Europe. So yes, people who think, well, Europe secured, well, it's secured through various measures. One of them is musical chairs. And if we have a massive growth in China and the Chinese start competing for the available F uh, LNG, we might see record prices again. And can the Europeans afford that? The other issue, that because the sanctions really never worked historically and they don't work. It's becoming sort of a joke that you ban yourself from the cheap Russian oil and then your foe, China, takes the cheap oil, refine it, then send you the gasoline and diesel at world prices. This is just a joke. Wait, so, so in effect, and this is something you won't hear on uh, so-called mainstream media in major nations, the uh, people paying for Putin's war, as they call it, are the European Union countries that are sanctioning themselves. They are paying in terms of price. If you look at the spending uh, that those governments made to kind of uh, mitigate the impact of the energy crisis, it's in billions of dollars. And if you look at it in terms of living standards, I mean, for God's sake, people went back to, to wood and burning wood. 
and remember all the talk about the showers and the hot showers and changing the thermostat and all that stuff. The, the, the living standards basically went down. So it's not only the financial cost, it's the living standards too that played a role here. The other thing is the reputational issue. People really, I mean, if you go through Africa and the Middle East, I heard this so many times in recent months. Uh, and we heard it uh, during the COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. What the Europeans would tell the Africans and the Middle Easterners, would they tell them, oh, you cannot use fossil fuel, but they went back to coal. They told them, you cannot give subsidies to your population to support gasoline and diesel prices, but we are going to do it anyway. So there was a damage to their reputation that I think it will take very long time to, to repair. Well, on the actual supply dimension, what, uh, what does it mean, what you're saying, for the reputations of Reuters, of Bloomberg? I mean, are they weaponized NATO uh, news sources? Because they say the Russian oil has been replaced by Middle, oil, Middle East oil as if OPEC is not an interconnected market. And, uh, and uh, actually, they don't, the world doesn't need Russia. And this punishment is very successful. Okay. Well, it is a musical chair, so it depends how you look at it. But we do have serious problems since you mentioned the media. We do have a serious problem because since 2017, we've seen data deterioration in the oil industry. And what we see now as one of the main results of this conflict is that we have a very large fleet of tankers that's going dark. We'll call them ghost ships. No one can track them. But they have oil and the Russians basically, along with the Iranians and the Venezuelans, basically perfected the game. And what we have right now as a result of the conflict is the largest black market ever in the history of the oil industry in oil. What that means is we already have data deterioration since 2017, and now the data got really, really worse. And waiters, AP, uh, Bloomberg, or others, what they do is they depend on technology to track ships. And if that technology does not, or those ships basically are not turning on uh, the, the technology they have to be tracked, then uh, no one can track them, uh, but few. And Reuters and Bloomberg cannot track those ships. So what's going to happen is we have data deterioration, and then those media outlets are reporting what only the technology enabling them to report, making the situation even worse. So the figures are all wrong. Luckily, correct, because they are way less than what the actual market is. To give you an example, we've seen this with Iran. They were reporting that Iranians were exporting 400,000 barrels a day. We know for a fact through various means and other means, some of it is direct information, that they were exporting about 800 and 900, so double. To which, of course, the but Americans luckily, say, the Americans always say ever uh, increased vigilance will, will succeed. But, I mean, in a sense, uh, the great Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary of Joe Biden, isn't she recognizing that by saying price caps is another element in the armor, not just sanctions, there's price caps on oil? Okay. One of the main lessons we learned from this experience here is that sanctions never work. What they do is they cause a lot of pain to both sides of the conflict, but they don't work. They don't achieve the objectives. Putin has not changed his stand, period. 
That's number one. But if they cause a lot of pain, and if your objective is just to cause pain, yes, it is successful. But the pain is for both sides, not only them. As for the price cap, the price cap is literally a joke. And the news that's been published saying that Russian revenues declined because of the price cap does not make any sense, and I'll tell you why. The price cap was implemented on the 5th and does not apply to all the tankers that left at that time. So all the tankers at sea, basically at that time, they, they, they are off that hook. And for, for the revenues to become taxable and the government receive those revenues, it takes months. Sometimes it takes six, six months, seven months, sometimes nine months. And all of a sudden, two weeks, the money has not even been received yet. And Janet Yellen is saying, oh, their revenues went down because of the price cap. Well, they haven't received the money to, for revenues even to decline. So you can see that it was pure, pure propaganda trying to market the price cap. Dr. Anas Halaji, I'll stop you there. More from the world-renowned expert on energy markets and the managing partner of Energy Outlook Advisors after this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with world-renowned expert on energy markets and managing partner of Energy Outlook Advisors, Dr. Anas Alhaji. If it is a game of musical chairs and not, as Anthony Blinken and uh, NATO leaders Jens Stoltenberg claim, a brilliant strategy to destroy Russia, uh, perhaps before they try another strategy against China, who knows, what about third-party sanctions? Isn't that starting to understand your analysis and say, oh, well, we'll do third-party sanctions like against Syria? And, uh, I mean, Syria is a separate case because they're actually stealing the oil of Syria uh, without well, any, with, uh, with third-party sanctions, let's let's why they have sanctions and then they have the price cap. Both of them together do not make sense because sanctions basically you stop, literally you stop. The price cap legalized, literally legalized the flow of Russian oil in this case. And as long as you buy your oil below this price, then you can get all the services. It is in the U.S. interest and the EU interest for the Russian oil to continue flowing. Because if you go for third-party sanctions and you limit the exports of Russia, oil prices will increase and might uh, cross $100 again as a result of that. And then what the United States would do? We have uh, uh, elections coming in 2024. We have elections in the EU too. So they don't want energy prices to go up. So it is very clear that the price cap was designed to legalize Russian exports. And so, that's really what happened. So a lot of your analysis, which includes this, uh, not the ghost of Kiev, the ghost ships that are running around the world's oceans, we have a price cap that uh, so far it's indeterminate what its effect is. You've been talking previously about increased uranium, uranium imports from Russia to the USA. You've talked about Japan being exempt from certain sanctions and even European insurers being able... I mean, who is funding Putin's war, as it says on the tabloid? Is, is Washington and the EU funding Putin's war? I cannot answer this question. In the sense that this money goes into the Russian revenue, right? Uh, Which is used but the for the idea. War. Well, the, the idea here is 
if they block Russian oil and Russian gas, they will suffer significantly. And uh, there is this saying in Arabic uh, that uh, they, they call the game biting fingers, that two people will challenge each other, everyone will put his finger in the other person's mouth and then bite on it and see who's going to scream first. And it becomes the game of, if they want to go for full sanctions, it becomes the game of biting fingers, who is going to scream first. And given the history, okay, Russia has a, a, a vicious dictator, and they literally can handle the pain uh, more than democracies. Because well, democracies... Russia denies it as a dictator. He was elected. He's hardly a dictator. Well, <laughs> I think internationally, even the U.S. government doesn't uh, say that. Well, Saddam, Saddam Hussein and Hafez Assad and Bashar Assad were elected too. Well, no, I think the Americans say that uh, Putin w was elected. You also, uh, maybe partly coming off that view, that if you think that Putin wasn't elected, uh, you aren't as excited about uh, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and BRICS uh, partnerships in terms of de-dollarization as some other analysts. Does that mean if the Saudis, the UAE, continuing to peg their currencies to the dollar, they're not interested in changing, does that mean the Americans will just continue raising interest rates to keep their uh, dollar competitive as the world requires that currency? I mean, it'll have an impact then on those currencies. Will, will Janet Yellen raise the rates? Uh, despite the harm it may do to ordinary Americans, where you are in Dallas? For, uh, for the sake of time, since we don't have enough time to discuss this in details, uh, all of these issues are written in our newsletter. So for people who are interested, uh, they can read the details of all these things. There is no substitute for the dollar at this stage, period. And oil is priced in US dollar, and there is no substitute. Yes, some people will say, well, look, in Shanghai exchange, we have literally the oil is priced in yuan, which is absolutely true that oil is priced in yuan, in yuan in the Shanghai exchange. But if you look at the numbers, you will find out that what's happening with the yuan is a mirror image of what's happening uh, to oil prices in Dubai with the dollar price. So you are just mimicking the dollar, the yuan, pricing is not acting on its own. So even when the Chinese tried to create a different system, it was just a mirror image of the dollar pricing. The Saudis, the Saudi real is back to the dollar. They have no interest in switching the system at this stage, simply because they still depend heavily on oil. And it's a joke basically to go and change it to the yuan because you shoot yourselves in the foot on one side and the yuan itself fluctuates within a certain range relative to the dollar anyway. Of course, of course. But what does this mean for ordinary Americans' livelihoods as macroeconomic dimensions to the calculations for interest rates in the U.S. Uh, affect ordinary Americans and affect uh, the booming economies, arguably, of the global south very differently? Well, uh, I will give you some examples on that. Yes, there are some disadvantages to various sectors and various people but there are many benefits too, because the United States now can import things cheaply from around the world. And oil prices can go up, but Americans are not going to feel it like the other countries. If you talk about, for example, India or Egypt today, or Turkey with the declining currencies, uh, because 
uh, even if prices stay the same, uh, just higher dollar will make oil more expensive in Turkey, India, and uh, Egypt, for example. But Americans are not going to feel the difference. But so we'll see more infrastructure disasters, many arguing that recent uh, train derailments and the state of infrastructure where you're speaking to me from is is quite unlike anything we would see in uh, the glittering towers of uh, the Middle East or Southeast uh, Asia. I think, uh, I think the uh, train derail derailment is, is um, an accident. Uh, yes, we have many other incidents that are questionable in terms of the number, in terms of the fact that most of those were directed or they export to uh, gas to uh, Europe. Uh, it did not happen to the Chinese, it did not happen to other countries. So yes, there are many of them are questionable in this case. But uh, what we don't know about, and this is really the major issue that people should be aware of, is that immediately after the war, all the uh, data centers in Russia that belonged to Google and everyone else basically being shut down, that was a good move because the big issue for everyone right now are cyber attacks not the actual attacks, not the fiscal attacks on those um, facilities. We've seen that, if you recall, uh, with the uh, colonial pipeline. It was a cyber attack, and uh, it, it really, I mean, the Northeast and the United States suffered greatly for, for several days until the problem is resolved, we don't and know, the only way they were able to... We don't know whether these were just old, aging railway uh, stock, of course, is, is the point. Uh, I mean, I suppose... Correct, but the point is... The point I would like to make here is really the, the, the more serious issue are the cyber attacks. And with the cyber attacks, our problem right now is we are trying to electrify everything. And when we electrify everything, and if you look at certain reports, that continuously, every single night, we have attacks on the grid system in the United States. And they fail every night. So if they are going to electrify everything, including transportation, and then you have terrorists or other countries basically making cyber attacks, and one of them is successful, the whole economy stops. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure about cyber uh, attacks. And I know you're not a Luddite arguing away for the interconnectedness of, of industry using the latest uh, technology. I suppose the elephant in the room, I'm speaking to you from Dubai, host of COP28, is, of course, the environment. Uh, you've been most critical of uh, what you see as absurd uh, policies by Western governments when it comes to the environment. I, I mean, just one aspect of it. I know you've, you've talked uh, carbon accounting, uh, talked about it as the mother of all Enrons. What about all these big multinationals? Shell earlier this year talks in January to sell all Norway's, uh, all their Norwegian oil and gas fields. How seriously are these companies taking their uh, de-fossil fuel of their industry and infrastructure they've built over decades? Or are these big Western multinationals in a degree of chaos in their boardrooms, having no real idea of what to do given uh, legislation changes, whether it be in Brussels, London, or uh, Washington every other day or every other week? When it comes to the environment and climate change, we always have low-hanging fruit, and we can act on this. So we can always do better. Regardless, the problem is that governments are intervening and they want to do way, way more than what we can do in a very short period of time. 
without finding a replacement for the energy sources that they want to get rid of. And you cannot go to a baseload uh, energy source like coal or natural gas and replace it with intermittent source. You cannot do that. This is a bad policy. So you end up with the crisis that we've seen before the Ukraine invasion in, in, uh, in the UK, for example. The main issue that we got to be worried about here is that, yes, companies or their board members, they will say, look, I want you to reduce your carbon footprint, let's say this year by 40%. So what companies do? They look at their assets and say, okay, here is a refinery. It's a 70-year-old refinery, and really most of my carbon footprint is in it, so I'm going to sell it. And they go back to the board and say, we reduced our carbon footprint by 40%. But the world did not reduce its carbon footprint. The refinery is there. Someone else who does not care as much about climate change or the environment bought it. Yeah, well, it looks nice on the prospectus. Just running out of time. Uh, I've got to ask about Syria. When is Joe Biden going to stop stealing, stealing the oil of Syria, as it has been over the past few years under I, the radar? I don't, I don't look at it uh, as stealing, as uh, the Syrian regime is saying, basically. I think following this issue, it was very clear that the moment President Erdogan of Turkey wanted to get this oil, the Americans stepped in. So the main issue was to prevent Erdogan from taking those oil assets. I think that's what it is. And then they have the experience with uh, 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 post-Saddam in Iraq, where the idea was it is a strategic asset. It's not about money, it's a strategic asset. If you control it, then you weaken your enemy on one side, and then you can literally finance a regime that you like. And that's how they are financing the Kurds in that area, instead of the U.S. taxpayer paying them. Well, but the, the main reason, the main reason really is to prevent Erdogan from taking those oil fields. Well, obviously, Turkish authorities say they have no intention that they want to uh, go and take those oil fields. Uh, Dr. Anas Alhaji, thank you. Thank you very much. That's it for the show. We'll be back soon with a brand new episode, but until then, you can keep in touch via all our social media. If it's not censored in your country, and head to our channel, Going Underground TV on rumble.com, to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you very soon.